Hey, good evening and welcome again. <clears throat> welcome. Uh, let's see who's here, who wasn't here earlier. We see Cynthia now. Welcome. And Caitlin. Great to see you again. Hope you guys had a nice summer. Who else we got? Ah, Rhea. Dragonfly Rhea. Welcome. Thank you for joining us here at the Remake Shadra from Dragonfly Land. Rhea Coleman from North Carolina, I think. Trying to get her to chime in. She's clearly. Hello. <laughs> there she is. How's it going, Rhea? Hi, Rhea. Good. good. It's great to be here. Sorry, I'm on my. I'm on my phone traveling around Halifax, um, but I wanted to drop by and um, make the first cool. class. Yeah. Cool. Halifax, neat. And how do you pronounce your name? Uh, Rhea. And Rhea. my last name is Colmar. Yep. Colmar. Cool. Yeah. That's yeah. close. Good. <laughs> Welcome. So, everyone, uh, usually, as, as usual, we start with the chant. And I will screen share the chant. And I will also try to remember to <coughs> circulate it to everybody. Uh, let's see. Share. Chant. I don't know about you guys, but if I don't write things down, they never, never happen. Okay, so in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. <coughs> so, let's see. Good evening and again and again and again. Let's see. So tonight is the first night of a class, of this class, and we'll meet on Tuesdays till the middle of December. And unfortunately, we'll skip next Tuesday. Right away, we skip a Tuesday because uh, I and many others here will be at the Profound Treasury Retreat in Sacco, Maine with Judy Leaf and many other trunkophiles like us. And I encourage you guys to come. It'll be again in, uh, held again in June of 2022. So think about it. <clears throat> Have you thought about it? <laughs> <laughs> Good. Some of us have school. Some of us have school. What if it ends in j late June? I mean, it happens in late yeah. June. Maybe. Maybe. Perhaps. maybe. Okay. This can't do it possible. in the middle either because I can't just leave them. No. Right at the end of the year, so yeah, really just at the it, end of the it. year in particular. Timing is everything. Caitlin, you oh. should bring them. Eighteen four and five year olds got it. That sounds like fun. We're gonna teach them how to meditate in a silent retreat. Yeah, and they could play on the beach half the day. You bring them up in a big school bus. Right at 
these are just great ideas all over the place. Their parents would like it. I know, because they need a break from them, but no. Anyway, okay. sorry, that was, my, that was my two teacher cents, sorry. <laughs> teacher two cents. <clears throat> hey, so tonight, uh, and then uh, we'll skip a week and we'll reconvene on the 28th, Tuesday. And uh, we're going to dive into this wonderful book by one of my gurus, Carl Brunholzel, Luminous Heart. And anybody have a problem getting the book? Everybody okay with getting it? <laughs> Sorry, the uh, discount code <laughs> came a little late. <laughs> well, I it worked out because I was able to return my Amazon one and do the Shambhala one. So, all right, all right, just in time, just in time shopping, and. Um, I thought I would uh, start tonight by giving like a a little overview of like why and how and wherefore that we come across uh, studying this book by Carl Brunholzel of uh, Collected Writings on, uh, sorry, Collected Writings of the Third Karma Barangjung Dorje, and then talk a little bit about his life those two things if we can cover tonight and oh the third thing was uh, to go through the contents a little bit and I circulated uh, sort of a detailed contents of the of the book right so I'll show these on screen as well and um, <clears throat> To, talk, to to think about like how do we end up studying that when we're we're uh, the overall rubric is the Shedra program, and the Shedra in uh, the Tibetan tradition is focused on studying the five core topics of Buddhism, and so I uh, we started preparing this way of looking at all the different uh, texts and teachers and traditions in Buddhism and as they get represented in the Shedra tradition in the last course on uh, Mipom's text on Buddha nature. And I fleshed it out a little bit more and I thought maybe we could, I could talk about that as the sort of background for why this book and how it sort of fits in to things. And so I am going to screen share again. Let's see. Oh, anybody have any questions so far? Just kidding. Okay. So just a big overview. Um, the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism is that uh, comes down to us 
from the Buddha and then many realize great masters of India and Tibet is generally considered to consist of two aspects profound and vast and the profound tradition <clears throat> or aspect of the Buddha's teachings is uh, focused on the understanding of the nature of reality cultivating wisdom understanding understanding confusion and ignorance and how to uproot those through wisdom and understanding and, and thereby achieve enlightenment. And the other aspect of the Buddhist teaching is called the vast aspect or quality of the Buddhist teachings which includes all the many different uh, subsidiary practices that one does or that one needs to do in order for wisdom to arise and actually overcome ignorance and that includes meditation practice primarily as well as the accumulation of merit through bodhisattva activity and um, in some sense includes an understanding of all the different varieties of the manifestations of phenomena or appearances that we encounter in this realm and in the other realms that we might find ourselves. And these act as, all as act as support for the development of the non-conceptual perception of the true nature of reality. <clears throat> these two come together in the cultivation of prajna or transcendent knowledge which has three levels. The first level is studying the different aspects of our mind and our world, of the teachings of the Buddha, and then contemplating them, analyzing them, um, challenging them, remembering them, bringing them to a mind, bringing them to mind in various circumstances, seeing how they apply to our life or not, struggling with ideas and concepts that are uh, difficult to understand or maybe foreign to our existence and see how those translate into our time and place and so forth. <clears throat> and then the third phase is meditation. It's bringing all of that understanding into the meditation practice where we cultivate the combined techniques of shamatha calm abiding meditation where we cultivate a focused attention that has strength, flexibility and clarity and insight or vipassana meditation which is focused on understanding the true nature of reality upon the basis of shamatha. So upon the basis of shamatha in meditation, ideally the meaning that we've been studying and then contemplating becomes the content of our meditation practice. So actually trying to understand those teachings while in the state of shamatha. And so <clears throat> I sort of divided the five topics of the Shedra curriculum among these two aspects of vast which is traditionally known as the accumulation of merit and then profound 
which is the accumulation of wisdom, which are the two accumulations. When we look at the simple, the most simplest summary of Buddhism from the Mahayana point of view, we say that there is a ground, a path, and a fruition. And on this, the level of the ground, we have the two realities, or two types of experience that beings have. One experience is of confused, confused appearances, believing things to exist as they appear, known as the relative or conventional reality, and then the true nature of the way things are, the ultimate truth. At the level of the ground, we have this dichotomy of things appearing one way, but not really being one way. Things appearing to be permanent, appearing to be satisfactory, appearing to have some controlling center within them that decides what's right and wrong, or what to do, or what to think or say at any one moment. And this is the delusion of the sense of a self, and similarly the the mistaken view that phenomena exist as they appear, as continuous, solid, and having something that makes them what they are. So on the level of the ground we have these two aspects of our experience. The confused relative aspect of appearances, and then the true aspect of the way things are, which we come through which we come to through analysis, through uh, testing, scientific method, through analysis, through investigation, or through direct non-conceptual experience of the senses, where we begin to see that the information provided by the senses, such as colors and sounds, and so forth, is actually worlds apart from the associative, conceptual experience that our mind has of those sense experiences, of those sense perceptions, where we form the idea that we're seeing something. We're seeing a table or a chair or apple. And instead, all our senses are, are experiencing is the bare data of of that uh, sensory phenomena. And so we experience these two aspects of reality in the stage of the ground. When we first come to the Dharma, it, that manifests in the, we're introduced to the idea of whether well, it's enlightenment and confusion. And we're confused. And that enlightenment is possible. Complete wakefulness is possible. And we catch little glimpses of it here and there. And through that we build confidence to progress on the path and pursue a complete understanding of the way things are in order to dispel the, the illusion of the way th we think things are and unravel the suffering that we create for ourselves and others. On the level of the path, to accomplish this, we need to accumulate merit and wisdom. And merit is literally um, the accumulation of auspicious circumstances that allow for us to practice and study the Dharma and that help others 
gain that same situation. And the accumulation of wisdom is the gradual and progressive experience of that non-conceptual perception of the way things are. So I, um, I used that framework to frame the five topics of the of Shadra curriculum. And just to f uh, finish that out, the two on the level of the fruition in terms of the summary of Mahayana Buddhism, the fruition is the various aspects of Buddha nature, of Buddhahood, enlightenment, which has two aspects. One is a form aspect and one is a formless aspect. The formless aspect is called the Dharmakaya. the body of the way things are, ultimately, which is without form, without concept, completely beyond any framework, limitless, vast and expansive and incomprehensible by thought or concept. And then there's the appearance of enlightened beings that takes infinite different manifestations, known as the rupakaya, the form kayas. And so the, the application of the path in Buddhism is to cultivate these two accumulations. And in order to support doing that, the Shedra tradition or the monastic study tradition, the monastic um, tradition of Buddhism in Tibet, came up with this focus upon these five major topics as the way to gain entry into the infinite range of different texts and teachings in the Buddhist tradition, which, while not infinite, literally are almost infinite, in that there's just thousands and thousands of Buddhist texts. And uh, so all the different schools, all the different traditions of Tibetan Buddhism focus on five, these five topics for their monastic education and practice. And in each one of these topics, there's three different types of texts. There's primers, texts that we study in preparation to study then the second type, which is the core texts. And then the third type is commentaries. So I haven't fleshed this out completely, but just briefly, the first topic of the Shadra curriculum is the Abhidharma, which is sometimes translated into English as the elements of existence. And the core text is by Vasubandhu, the Abhidharma Kosha, and it's Basha. So Abhidharma means higher Dharma or manifest Dharma, the sort of essence of the way things are. And the Kosha is this, uh, another Sanskrit word meaning treasury. And then Basha means commentary. So his text is a root text and a commentary, and that's the core text for the study of Abhidharma. And there's two traditions of Abhidharma. There's Vasubandhu's tradition, which is called the lower tradition, and then the higher tradition of the Mahayana version of Abhidharma is uh, focused around this, these two texts. 
by Maitreya and Asanga. And there's actually the, the uh, I should have put in here, there's the Vajrayana version of Abhidharma, which focuses on the study of how these similar topics are presented in the Kala Chakra tradition and the Vajrayana tradition of uh, creation and completion stage practices, which is visualization of deities and palaces and so forth, and the, the cosmic view of the universe that comes along with that, which is <coughs> um, presented in a rather amazing way in one of the books that is uh, partially included in Carl Bernholtz's Luminous Heart, which is called The Profound Inner Reality, where Rangjan Dorje goes through in detail the whole Vajrayana view of Abhidharma, of the body, of the universe, of the mind, and of the inner body, all the channels and the winds and the bindus, the whole inner secret tantric world. And uh, what we'll see in the book Luminous Heart is that there's two chapters that are not esoteric and uh, so are uh, considered by the tradition okay to share with those who have not been uh, brought into appropriate level of tantric practice and study to study the entire text but can be studied by anybody with a genuine interest in Dharma and so we'll see those two chapters from that text uh, included in this collection by Carl Bernholtz where he presents the Vajrayana point of view of how does confusion arise and what is confusion and what is wisdom and what is the process of overcoming confusion through wisdom. It's a really fascinating presentation. The introduction in this topic is the classification called this, this, uh, these texts that have this odd name they're called the classification of things. And it's a, basically a series of definitions of phenomena arranged in a, in a sort of hierarchical manner to represent uh, the way that uh, phenomena are classified in the Abhidharma system. And uh, it, has, it, it starts off with a definition of what is a thing, which is sort of cool. Like if you look up thing in the, you know, the English dictionary, uh, it's sort of a hard thing to define. And then there's the, the second topic in the Shedra curriculum is called in Sanskrit pramana, which means valid knowing, valid cognition. And it's the whole study of, of how do we know things? So the first Abhidharma is like, what do we find around us literally in the world? We find the elements, we find different beings, different world realms, we find different paths, different practices, and we find in our own makeup, we have skandhas, ayatanas, datus, and so on and so forth. And then in the second topic, we talk about, well, how do we know these things? How do we know which what's true and what's not true? How do we know what's genuine and not? How do we come to a definitive understanding of things. And we learn that there's basically two, there's three main ways for one to come to a valid understanding of a topic or a thing. One is by what other people say. 
And sometimes what other people say is reliable, sometimes it's not. And so that's not ultimately a completely reliable source, what other people say. When it's what the Buddha says, or people like the Buddha, it's fairly reliable, usually. Unless he's talking about things that may have changed since he lived. Um, when we talk about what you read in the newspaper or in magazines, it's not always that reliable, as we know. But how do we come to understand things in a, in a convincing manner? And this is important because we want to, in, in order, the premise of Buddhism is that in order to achieve enlightenment, we need to know definitively what the true nature of reality is, what the true nature of our existence, our way of being, and the way of being of the things in the world and of our mind really is. And how do we come to a definitive understanding about those? Because that's what we meditate on. Ideally, we meditate on what's true. Instead of meditating on our habitual patterns and our delusions about the way things are, ideally, we want to meditate on what actually is. And so determining what actually is in order to then meditate on it is sort of a useful thing. And there's two gentlemen who lived in around 5th century of the Common Era in India, Dignaga and Dharmakirti, who focused on this whole aspect of the tradition, sometimes called logic, Buddhist logic or reasoning. And these are their most famous texts, the Pramana Samuchaya, which is a compilation or compendium Samuchaya means compendium, as in Abhidharma Samuchaya, of valid cognition. And then Dharmakirti's text, the commentary of Artika on uh, Pramana. Valid cognition is the core text in the, in the Shedra curriculum that all schools study. And then we have different offshoots of, the, of this tradition which I haven't really fleshed out in any detail yet. And the preparatory materials for this is these two topics that are called the classifications of the way of, of ways of knowing that goes through the different types of mind and how we experience them and how they know their objects, how different types of mind know how different types of objects. And how do we come to an understanding of the significance of those different ways of knowing and different types of objects of those ways of knowing. And in doing that, we begin to understand the importance of logical reasoning. So the next primer is the classification of reasonings. And uh, simply put, there's two types of reasons. Reasons which strive to prove something by an evidence, a positive evidence of what it is, and uh, logical uh, reasoning that strives to prove the way things are by the absence of evidence. And that's generally, that second type is generally the main type in Buddhism, where we come to an understanding of the lack of a self, and the lack or the absence of a true nature of phenomena, by understanding that if there was one, it should appear in a certain way. And other factors that we do experience directly 
would not be contradictory in the way that they are. And the third topic is conduct, and traditionally this includes the monastic rules, or focuses on the monastic rules in the core text. It's by a gentleman named Gunaprabha, glorious virtue, and his text is called the Vinaya Sutra. And uh, more practically, uh, for those of us that are not monastics, are texts that cover the vows, the different vows that we take, the refuge vow, the bodhisattva vow, and in the Vajrayana, the samaya vows, and the meaning of those vows, and how those vows manifest ideally in our life in terms of our conduct, how we conduct ourselves when we're alone and in relationship to other people in order to reduce harm and produce benefit to self and others. And then we have the topic of the path. So what's the path of progress that we undertake in all of this? How does that, how does it proceed and what are the different qualities and, and uh, techniques that we cultivate along this way? And the main text that encapsulates this, the different stages and qualities to be cultivated along those stages of the path is this text by Maitreya called in Sanskrit Abhisamaya Lankara. Alankara is an ornament. So it's the ornament of Abhisamaya. Samaya in this case is realization as opposed to Samaya vow. And Abhi means higher as it did in Abhidharma. So the ornament of higher realization. And this text is an amazing encapsulation of thousands of pages of Prajnaparamita Sutras. Maitreya summarized all of the contents of all of the Prajnaparamita Sutras in this one text that's about 30 pages long in, in verse. <laughs> Which is the, another amazing thing I left out is that all of these texts are in verse. These guys wrote all of these texts in verse that have these uh, uh, rules in terms of syllables. not They don't rhyme the way we do in verse often, but they have certain uh, four-line verses that have certain number of syllables per verse. So it's not perverse, but per verse. And there's some commentaries on this, and we're familiar with the type of commentary on the path essentialized in this text by Maitreya, we're, we're familiar with the tradition that Atisha started when he came to Tibet and encountered uh, a sort of scattered tradition in Tibet. He came in 1042, which was about a hundred years, one or two hundred years after the um, persecution of Buddhism in Tibet. Uh, Tibet sort of has two phases of Buddhism. There's the early period where Padmasambhava came and established Buddhism in Tibet that later becomes called the Nyingma tradition or the tradition of the old ones. And then there was a persecution of the Dharma by a Bunpo king named Long Dharma. And uh, after he was assassinated, the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma, starts to come back. And it takes a couple of hundred years to come back because he had done such a good job of uh, uprooting it. Uh, but gradually it does, and we have people like Marpa Lotsawa, Marpa the great translator, goes to India and studies with Naropa, 
and comes back and starts the Cargill lineage. And um, we have the same thing happen in the, the uh, Sakya tradition, uh, where I think Virupa is the source of that tradition. I'm a little shady on that. i got to brush up on the source of the Sakya buzz. But um, the, uh, the, in the 11th century, Atisha comes and visits Tibet. He's invited to Tibet by the king at that time, named uh, Ralpachen, who uh, um, tries to bring back Buddhism in, his, in a very concerted way and uh, starts a new translation project to translate all the different texts in a fresh way that they received, that Tibet received from India. And along those lines, he invites teachers from India to come and visit, and here's that in particular, Atisha is one of the greatest. He invites Atisha, and Atisha comes and, and thinks, What's, what would be helpful for these Tibetans? And uh, they're focused on Tantra, and they're practicing Tantra without a, a good foundation in Hinayana and Mahayana which is a problem. So he uh, places great emphasis on the study and practice of Hinayana Mahayana as a foundation for Vajrayana. And in doing that, he, he uh, composes a text that lays out the stages of the path in a gradual, progressive order. Whereas the Abhisamaya Lankara is an extremely complicated condensation of the path that sort of takes this view from uh, of the sort of 10th stage bodhisattva. Atisha makes, uh, realizes that, that normal humans need a really simple, progressive way of entering into and understanding and practicing the Dharma. And so he writes this very famous text called the Bodhipata Pradipa, which is the light of, of uh, the path of Bodhi, of wisdom the light on, that sheds light, or the lamp for the path of wisdom. And that short little text, like 10 pages, summarizing Hinayana Mahayana, and with little, like, two verses at the end about Vajrayana, sets the stage for hundreds of texts that follow after that. Uh, and those of us in the Kagyu tradition are probably familiar with Gampopas, Torch of Certain, uh, sorry, Jewel Ornament of Liberation. Here, the Tibetan, Rinchen Targye. And, uh, but every different school, has, and, and pretty much every great teacher and author from every school writes what's called a Lomrim, Lomrim graded path text that lays out the stages of the, of the path of understanding and practice in more or less detail. And the primer for this is a, a little text called Grounds and Paths that gives you the key definitions and of the key terms involved in that topic. Now I've added the topic of meditation to this scheme because the monastic topic is not really that uh, relevant to us. So I've put in meditation as a core topic of the Rime Shedra. Although in the traditional Tibetan system, the Shedra is the study of the Dharma, and the um, 
droop draw, what's called droop draw, which in Tibetan means the, the uh, attainment or the system of attainment is the system of practice and that consists of uh, the regular part of the monastery shrine room and then retreat centers that uh, surround a monastery. And everybody was expected to do that. And only some did the Shedra curriculum. But uh, here in the West, obviously, we've, we've come to the realization that meditation and uh, combining meditation and study, which, which uh, um, Trungpa Rinpoche said was one of the greatest achievements that he did, because he was born and, and raised in this tr Tibetan tradition that separated the two components of the path of study and practice. And he came in in 1973, he held his first seminary three-month program where he did alternating periods of meditation and study. And for him, apparently, that was a, a, a revolutionary thing for him to combine them. And now we take it totally for granted totally like it's odd if that doesn't happen if you would study without the context of meditation but in Tibet that's how it happened it was completely separate anyway in the core topic of meditation we have the early tradition of Buddhism called the Nikaya I, I prefer that term over Hinayana or early or other ways of referring to uh, that strata of Buddhism that we uh, sort of say happened in the first few hundred years, theoretically, of the Buddhist, after the Buddhist Parinirvana, and which now is manifested in uh, South and Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, Thailand, and so forth. Um, but somewhat a more accurate way of referring to that tradition is by calling it Nikaya Buddhism. And Nikaya is the term that's used in. Uh, as a way of um, compiling the teachings of that tradition in what's called the uh, Tripitaka, the three baskets of the teachings of the Buddha as compiled in, the, in that tradition. There's the Vinaya teachings, the Sutra teachings, and the Abhidharma teachings. And the Sutra teachings, which are really the teachings that are most authentically and reliably attributable to the Buddha are in divisions called Nikayas, five Nikayas. And uh, the Vinaya is really rules that he put down and stories about them, about why he put those rules down. And those Vinaya texts and practices are common to all different schools of Buddhism. They're not unique to early Buddhism. So t the Tibetan tradition has the same Vinaya as most of the Theravada traditions, believe it or not. And the Abhidharma texts are also not unique to this early tradition, so-called earlier Hinayana or Theravada tradition. And so really what is unique is the Nikayas, this, these five collections of uh, the, the teachings attributed to the Buddha. And so in that collection, the most famous presentation of meditation is on this. It's called the Satipatthana Sutta, the sutta that teaches the establishment of mindfulness. Sati is Pali for mindfulness. If there's a famous commentary by a 5th century um, 
outstanding scholar practitioner named Buddha Gosha, who lived in, in uh, southern India and went to Sri Lanka and brought, uh, helped codify the teachings in Sri Lanka. And then interestingly enough, the teachings of, the, of, the, of this tradition are also codified um, in some ways the most completely and thoroughly by a Sangha, who is obviously one of the major Mahayana proponents, along with Nagarjuna. He's credited as the major chariot holder of the vast aspect of the Buddhist teachings. But he writes a, a number of huge books that are sort of compilations of things that were prevalent at that time. One of which is called the Yogacarabhumi Shastra. That's a huge compilation of 17 different texts with five main parts. And one of those is called the Shravaka Bhumi, the stages of a Shravaka. And that presents in great detail the, the, the different practices that one undergoes in that tradition, in that early so-called Nikaya tradition. And where first we find presented the obstacles and antidotes of shamatha, what, what we consider the sort of the core presentation of shamatha first appears here, the different stages and qualities of shamatha. And then in the Mahayana tradition, we have a sutra attributed to the uh, teaching attributed to the Buddha called the Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra, the untying of the knots or the uh, clarification of the intent of the Buddha, Samdhi Nirmochana. And there's a chapter in that sutra where the Buddha has an interchange with Maitreya, the next Buddha, about shamatha and Vipassana. And it's this amazing diff discussion about what is shamatha and what's Vipassana. How do they differ? How are they the same? How are they cultivated? And so on and so forth. It's a really amazing uh, chapter. It's, it's rather difficult to understand. And so because it's so difficult to understand, we generally rely on its commentaries or texts about meditation that are not really direct commentaries, but sort of extrapolations. And the most famous one is Kamala Shila's Stages of Meditation. Bhavana is the general term for meditation in Sanskrit. And Krama is the... Uh, translated as the stages. And Kamala Shila um, came with Shantarakshita to Tibet first, uh, when the Tibetan king Trisong Detson wanted to establish Buddhism in Tibet and build a monastery and uh, ordain monks and create translators. He invited Shantarakshita, who came with his nephew Kamala Shila. And as we know, as the story goes, he had a hard time building the building the monastery Samye, and he he recommended that the king invite Padmasambhava, who came and overcame the uh, obstructing forces and was able to construct that. But um, Shantarakshita came and taught for quite some time, and then went back to India. But he left his his nephew Kamala Shila there to work with the Tibetans, and he, like Atisha, hundreds of years later realized that Tibet, that the Tibetans needed a meditation manual. And up until that time, there was really no meditation manual, like down to the details of like um, posture and place and preparation. And he's the first guy, you know, his, his presentation of uh, 
of meditation is manual and meditation is so down to earth and like uh, relatable or real world that he, he even has one in the preparation stage he has this phrase where he says one should go to the bathroom beforehand <laughs> you know it's just very practical it's like immensely practical anyway so his uh, three texts on uh, the stages of meditation is really the key text in this area and then we have the uh, the profound accumulation of wisdom with the topic of the Madhyamaka and Madhyamaka or Madhyamaka whatever is uh, the middle way the middle way between the extremes between all extremes in particular the extremes of existence or non-existence of things being or not being And that's the, the most famous teaching of the Buddha, is the, the teaching of the middle way, where he refused to say that things are one way definitively, um, or that they're not. It, when it came down to certain very profound topics. And that set the stage for this idea that the, the, the understanding of the true nature of reality was inconceivable because he demonstrated that uh, when somebody, when, when people came to him and presented two opposite conceptual frameworks and asked which was right, he rejected both of them. He was not willing to endorse either one because both of them were conceptual frameworks and all conceptual frameworks are inherently incorrect and lead to uh, wrong view and wrong understanding and suffering. So he, he uh, demonstrated the middle way by maintaining silence in this very famous way. And uh, the main tradition of the Madhyamaka uh, comes down through the ages in two aspects. The Yogacara tradition attributed to initially to Maitreya and of Maitreya's five dharmas, or five main texts, there's two texts in particular where he presents the middle way, understanding from his point of view of the Yogacara, which is the Dharma Dharmata Vibhanga, which means, Vibhanga means the uh, distinguishing, discernment, or separation between Dharma and Dharmata between things, dharma, dharma being sort of the mundane um, manifestation of the phenomena that we all experience, and dharmata being their true nature. So what's the difference between the way things are and the way they appear? Really a, a wonderfully uh, pointed text on distinguishing, you know, what's real and what's an appearance? What's the reality behind appearances? And then a second text that has this term vibhanga in it, or distinguishing, or distinction. And here, um, this text is the distinction between the family, or the lineage, or the um, sort of um, inherited quality that all beings have, where we're sort of programmed by our DNA 
we inherit innate sense of self. Innate, we have um, um, reflex reactions. We have um, natural, I can't remember the term, uh, learned behavior, you know, uh, ingrained behaviors that we're, that we're born with. And then we develop others from uh, conditioning from those around us. So distinguishing between all of that and Ratna, which is the jewel that represents the Buddha nature. So how do we distinguish between Buddha nature and sentient beings and their habitual tendencies? What is the difference between those two? How do they relate? How can there be a jewel of Buddha nature within this matrix of an otherwise totally confused and messed up human being? This is also known as the Uttara Tantra, the highest uh, continuum text that presents Buddha nature in detail. And then we have the Madhyamaka system, which is sort of getting to the root of the of the of the issue in terms of where we are with the current uh, course. And the Madhyamaka system was made famous by Nagarjuna, who um, looked at the way that the understanding of the nature of reality was being presented at his in the in the days that he lived, which was about one and a half hundred years after the Common Era. And the main thing that was being presented was the Abhidharma system, which, with uh, fixation and on presenting endless versions of the lists of phenomena, the various phenomena of existence, and the way those related to each other, what's called conditional relations. There's the elements and the way they interact. Those two aspects make up the traditional version of Abhidharma. When we learn Abhidharma, we basically learn the, the elements of existence. We don't learn this topic of conditional relations, which when you study Abhidharma from the point of view of the earlier Nikaya tradition, the emphasis is on those two aspects, the elements and then how they re react or relate to one another, conditional relations. And they have this vast system of possible relations that where they enumerate all the different possible relations between different types of phenomena. It's rather mind-boggling. Anyway, Nagarjuna comes along and says, basically says, you guys, and of course it's guys at this point, you guys are um, lost in, in lists. You guys have totally lost sight of the true purpose of all this study. You just totally reified all these different terms, all these different elements, as being real things. And therefore, you're never going to achieve liberation from samsara because you're fixated on all the different enumerations of samsara. And so he lays out in a series of texts called the Six Treatises on Reasoning um, his way of understanding the true nature of reality as being completely beyond conception. And that as long as you don't understand that all the lists are merely skillful means to go beyond lists, then you're going to end up being continually or uh, forever caught in your mind with all those lists. 
Um, so I said here five of the six treatises because one of his six treatises that are called on reasoning or logic is really an overview of the path. So I've I, uh, had it up above in that section. His main student is Aryadeva, whose famous text is the 400 verses that presents the understanding of uh, the, the uh, middle way and uh, gives also a very helpful way of approaching the uh, complete understanding of the middle way. So um, someday these are texts that we will come to study. And Nagarjuna and Aryadeva are known retrospectively as root or model Madhyamakans because they present a very pure version of this uh, way of experiencing the middle, the middle way beyond conception without getting caught up in a discussion that happened over the next few hundred years, uh, which is, which is, uh, results in a uh, elaboration of the Madhyamaka tradition into two branches that are both called derivative Madhyamaka. There's the Swatantrika tradition uh, presented by Bhava Viveka in his famous texts and then there's the Prasangika tradition. And the Prasangika tradition gained preeminence in Tibet and most traditions in Tibet um, for at least for some time cleaved to the Prasangika tradition. And the main uh, text in that category of the Prasangika, original Prasangikas, is this text, Madhyamaka Avatara. Avatara means the entry into, just like we have the Bodhicharya Avatara which is the entry into the Bodhisattva's way of life. Here we have the entry into the middle way by Chandra Kirti is the, is the root text of the Shedra curriculum in this category. And preceding him is Buddhapalata with his text called the, the Commentary by Buddhapalata. He, he didn't really come up with a name, so they named it that. <laughs> and Shanti Deva's Bodhicharavatara's ninth chapter. And... Um, I'm going to skip these guys for now and I'm going to come back to them. We have an India synthesis by a gentleman named Shantarakshita who synthesizes the Swatantrika and Prasangika versions of Madhyamaka and to some extent the Yogacara as well. In his famous text called the Madhyamaka Alankara, Alankara again is the ornament of Madhyamaka, the ornament of the middle way. And we've had courses on that as well. And then in Tibet, we find these different ways of understanding Madhyamaka, or presumably, uh, um, they say there, there are two different ways of understanding Prasangika Madhyamaka, but really there are two different ways of understanding Madhyamaka in general. And that one of them, the uh, Rangtongpa tradition, the emptiness of self tradition, is exclusively focused on Prasangika. And yet the other tradition, Jantongpa, is uh, really uh, a way of bringing together Yogacara and Madhyamaka, not only Svatantrika and, pra and Prasangika. And here we have extreme Rangtongpas in Tibet, which is Tsongkhapa, the famous, amazing 
master who gives rise to the Galupa tradition and his main disciple Gyaltso. And then on the other hand, we have extreme Zhentongpas. It's like, you know, uh, uh, the right, right uh, leftists and rightists of their various political parties. And the Tibet, it was focused around understanding the middle way. And the extreme Zhentongpas or Dolpopa famous master, meditation master, and uh, Taranata, one of his descendants, and the Jonangpa school. And then we have what I'm portraying as middle wares, because from, uh, I come, I uh, am of this tradition, and in my, in my view, these are uh, the middle way between these two extremes of uh, Rong Tongpas and Shan Tongpas, and they bring together uh, Rong Tong and Shan Tong into a unified way of understanding and practicing the Madhyamaka. And in the Sakya tradition, not all Sakyapas are middle wayers. Many of them are Rong Tongpas, but there's a couple in particular that are are very amazing and uh, not falling into the traps of one extreme or another. And then we have the, the Nyingma tradition, starting with Rongzom in the 11th century, and then Longchenpa in the 13th, and Mipam. And we've done classes recently on the writings of Longchenpa and Mipam. And then in the Kagyu tradition, the main proponents are Rongzhong Dorje and, and the 8th Karmapa in terms of the uh, presentation of the philosophical view of the tradition. And uh, which sort of brings me to the conclusion of like, why this book now? And uh, similar to the Mipam book, it's it's uh, an interest in sharing with us and also giving myself a chance to delve into uh, the way that my traditions, our traditions, perhaps if you're of the Nyingma Kagyu, uh, if you cleave to the Nyingma Kagyu traditions, how do they present the true nature of reality, the, the view? And these are the main proponents. And so um, these I consider to be uh, essential authors that should be studied in this Shedra. However, it is a Rime Shedra, and so we have studied texts from all of these different masters, Taranata, Dolpopa, Tsongkhapa, and Chandrakshita, Chandrakirti, and so on and so forth. And so the idea in the Rime Shedra is to, is to go around and study these different texts, these core texts, to the extent that they're available in English. And I have yet to put in the English translations to show for those that are interested where these are available in English translation. And... Uh, study the ones that are available and are manageable. A lot of things are translated into English in a, in a way that's not really digestible. And the last topic is that the primers in the topic of the Madhyamaka, uh, the fifth topic of the Shedra curriculum, is uh, what's called uh, tenets the uh, presentation of the, the different views of the different schools, primarily focused on the four, what are called the four philosophical schools of Buddhism, which are the Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, uh, Chittamatra, 
and Prasangika. And here are a few that we have studied throughout the Shedra's history, Rime Shedra. Uh, these two are Galukpa uh, tenants text and then Mipam's text on the tenants. And so that brings us to the third karma of Rongjun Dorje. And um, let's see how we're doing with time. Oh, we're doing okay. Any, any comments or questions or suggestions so far? Have I bored you all completely to sleep? Okay, I'll try harder. I have a question. Henrietta. <laughs> um, how, why is it that we, we in this tradition, don't uh, study the, the Satipatthana Sutra? that much. <laughs> At least not that I'm aware of, anyway. Well, we should. We should, and I have. And interestingly, um, you know, if you look at what text Trumper and Pache presented and had and, and, and made available, I'm going to have to mute a couple of people here because I was getting an echo. Um, but uh, early on in the the history of publishing in Trumpa Rinpoche's world, he came out with a series of texts called Garuda. And uh, very early on, those were very much internal publications that just sort of presented what's going on in his sangha, in his community. But in what was known as Garuda IV, he presents the Satipatthana Sutra. He had his translation committee uh, uh, find what they considered to be the best translation, which was, I believe, the one by Nyanaponika Tara. And uh, they published that in Garuda IV, and along with a commentary by him on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Practice. And he taught three seminars on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And so he, he considered it an essential topic. And uh, then, subsequent to that, we have many other teachers who, who teach that now. Dzogchen Pula Prabhupada gave uh, teachings on that a, a number of times. And um, it's very, the way Trung Prabhupada did it and then Pula Prabhupada after him, it's very different than it's done in the traditional Tibetan system, where um, in the Tibetan system, the four foundations of mindfulness are looked at as the... Um, very first part of the five paths. When they divide the five paths into like uh, the first path is divided into lesser, middle, and and um, greater path of accumulation. The first part of that, the lesser path of accumulation, is summed up by the four foundations of mindfulness in this scheme called the 37 wings of enlightenment. And uh, it goes on from there. But um, in presenting that, the, Mah the Tibetans repeated the Mahayana view that Shant uh, Deva had of the four foundations, where he considered that the four foundations of mindfulness were um, a way of experiencing emptiness, of understanding emptiness of the body, feelings, mind, and dharmas which is not really how it was understood in the earlier tradition. And Trungpa Rinpoche presents a very different 
version of those four foundations of mindfulness. Basically, as he says himself in the 1973 seminary when someone asks him about the terminology that he uses in translating those terms, because he does use different terms than the normal, he says he's presenting a very practitioner point of view and that they are shamatha in his presentation. But yeah, so we did, uh, years ago, we did a, a course on the four foundations of mindfulness and studied all these different points of view on a Theravada and Mahayana and uh, Tibetan different points of view. So you should find that in the in the website somewhere, I would think. And also, um, Acharya Richard John had, has done some good work in sort of synthesizing what you were describing as, you know, when Pundla Prashe presented certain uh, materials and then people were wondering why it was different from Trumper Rinpoche's and so I think there was some nice work on looking at why the terms are different but it's still the sort of same uh, tradition but kind of details on how when you break it down into like the uh, approach or something like that that uh, that they're all perfectly consistent so there's a lot of interesting teachings on that that subject Yeah, thank you. So um, then just briefly on a uh, little bit on Rongjung Dorje and the, the current book. And I circulated a couple of versions of, uh, short versions of Rongjung Dorje's life. And uh, I will actually s try to circulate a couple of more very short ones that are quite good for you to read during our gap, our so-called gap week of next week. Um, and uh, uh, but one of them, I, I just wanted to share this this very short little description of a couple of events in his life, where uh, in in a book in uh, a book that is a full translation of this profound inner reality or profound inner topic that uh, I mentioned earlier as being Rongjung Dorje's Vajrayana Abhidharma text, and which we have included in Luminous Heart, a couple of chapters of, in the full translation of that text by Elizabeth Callahan, uh, called the, the Profound Inner Principles, and she translated it as, she gives a very short little biography of, uh, of him, and she says, uh, At the age of three, surrounded by other children, Rongjung Dorje donned a small black hat and sat on a, a rock as a throne and said to his little children friend, all these appearances that display in such varieties are just like illusions, mirages and rainbows. Though they appear, they are empty of reality. I realize this, and for you children who do not, I feel compassion. I'm sure, Caitlin, you have a lot of children like this in your group, so it's not a big deal to surprise you. But for me, that was sort of a surprising three-year-old activity every day. And then soon after, it is said that he said to his parents and others, I am the Karmapa. And at five, when he met the great Siddha, Ogenpa, who I'm, I'm adding, Ogenpa was the, the main student of the second Karmapa, Karmapakshi, and then became the teacher of 
wrongs him towards you, the third karma. But when he met that this great Siddha Ogyenpa, his teacher in his previous life, he climbed unhesitatingly onto the throne along with him. When questioned by Ogyenpa about the prophecy, the propriety of doing this, he replied, I am your Lama, but now I look to you for refuge. And according to many accounts, Ogyenpa gave gave him Karmapakshi's secret name, Rongjung Dorje. And um, uh, later on it says, there are also short accounts of Rongjung Dorje's meditation experiences. At the age of 10, during an earthquake, all the knots in his channels were undone, and he, st he stabilized his understanding that all phenomena are one's own mind. In other words, he attained enlightenment at the age of 10. And then it's another story is that he beheld clearly how the external and internal planets align, uh, external and internal planets, and uh, it gives this weird Sanskrit term that I think relates to the chakras of the body, align, uh, after which he wrote some text. Sorry, that was not that relevant. Anyway, so I, I like that uh, story of him on the throne with Ogenpa and uh, his enlightenment experience. But um, when we look at Rongjung Dorje, who he is and uh, why we are studying him and why he's so important to study, um, there's there's quite a bit to say. And uh, but to try to sum it up, the the main thing is that as the third karmapa, he inherits the tradition that was developed over a period of about um, three to four hundred years, starting with Tilopa, then to Naropa, and then to Marpa, Milarepa, Gampopa, and then the first two karmapas, Tusumkenpa and Karmapakshi. And um, he does uh, two main things. One is that first he establishes the line of the karmapas as the karma as like this reincarnation line, where he um, in that he uh, continues what Karmapakshi, the second karmapa, um, proclaimed. And was just sort of it was just sort of beginning to become um, famous for or or known about throughout Tibet was that there was this person Karmapakshi who claimed to be the direct incarnation of the first karma of uh, Tusumkenpa. And um, before that time, there were not that many people who had claimed to be direct incarnations. And it, mostly before that time, there were people who um, were said to be emanations of different like bodhisattvas or maybe great beings who had lived before. But never, uh, but there's this distinction between an emanation and a re reincarnation or a rebirth. 
which uh, is a significant though elusive distinction um, where people, some people, many people were said to be emanations of various bodhisattvas. In retrospect, some of the Tibetan kings were said to be emanations of bodhisattvas. Atisha's three main students were said to be emanations of the three main bodhisattvas who are Avalokiteshvara, Maitreya, uh, sorry, uh, Manjushri, and Vajupani. And then Dromtun was uh, Tisha's main disciple. His three main disciples were said to be emanations. But nobody had really uh, come up with this idea of direct rebirth of a specific person. And Karmapakshi was the first one to do that, the second Karmapakshi. And he said, I am the same as that other person. I'm his actual incarnation. And uh, it was sort of taken with a grain of salt and sort of accepted because he was an incredible individual and uh, had a lot of uh, miraculous powers for which uh, brought him the the uh, combined honor and uh, imprisonment of being invited to the Mongol court at the time and um, and he proclaimed himself as the karma, but he recognized himself as the karma. But, but Rongjung Dorje, the third one, was the first one that was recognized by others based upon indications left by the previous karmapa, which starts this line of incarnation of karmapas, where one karmapa after another um, predicts the incarnation of the next karmapa and leaves a letter indicating the circumstances of the of his next rebirth. And Rongjung Dorje spends quite a bit of time uh, and energy sort of solidifying this concept of there being this line of karmapas and that he's going to uh, reincarnate, take rebirths again and again as future karmapas. And so he writes a lot of stories about his past rebirths both as the first two karmapas and other beings, and uh, and then he writes stories of his future rebirths, and uh, he gets uh, patronage from uh, uh, the Mongol emperors again, and uh, spends time living in Xanadu, the famous capital of the Mongol Empire, Xanadu, and uh, sort of tolerates the royal patronage. Uh, which for him was unbearable because he was a total renunciate and liked nothing better than to to live in a, a very austere circumstances and hated the luxury and the temptation that was ever present at the court of the Mongol emperors. And um, But he put up with it because he knew it would help establish the line of the Karmapas, the authority and the uh, recognition and acceptance of the karmapas. And then the second thing he does is that he's uh, pretty much the first one in that lineage of teachers that I enumerated who writes texts on um, topics that are not esoteric. Pretty much before him, most of those teachers were wrote exclusively on very esoteric topics. You look at writings attributed to Talopa, and Naropa and Tamarpa, and they're very esoteric texts in that, and when I say esoteric, I mean texts related 
exclusively to Tantra and Tantric, advanced Tantric practices, basically what we know today as the six dharmas of Naropa. These practices of the inner heat, Tumo, and so on and so forth. Advanced uh, completion stage practices. When we talk about this, the stages of creation or visualization, development stage, and completion stage practices. And um, Gampopa, a, a few generations before Rongjung Dorje, um, spent quite a bit of effort to extrapolate, explain, and make accessible the teachings on Mahamudra. And he came up with this tradition of, of understanding Mahamudra as having different aspects of uh, Sutra Mahamudra, and Essence Mahamudra, and Tantric Mahamudra where Tantric Mahamudra was the type of Mahamudra one would practice based on the esoteric yogas of Tantra, the six dharmas of Naropa. And Sutra Mahamudra was basically um, an extension of Prajnaparamita understanding. And then Essence Mahamudra was sort of the, the, the uh, meeting point of those two different types of Mahamudra. But Ramajan Dorje is unique in that he, he he writes commentaries on many Mahayana texts, many texts by Maitreya. Uh, he writes this text called The Profound Inner Topics or Principles, which is this uh, amazing like encyclopedia compendium of all the different aspects of the tantric system in excruciating minute detail, as well as the Abhidharma system of the nature of the mind, as I mentioned earlier the eight consciousnesses and how confusion arises and manifests and how wisdom can be cultivated. But all these commentaries on uh, Mahayana texts, Maitreya, the five dharmas or five texts of Maitreya, and then texts on Mahayana topics. So if we look through the table of contents, of the luminous heart. <clears throat> Just using the book version. Or, or actually, uh, let's. I'll use the version that I circulated because it has more detail. And we can look through that. Let's see. Screen share. Here. So tonight we read these uh, wonderful uh, forwards and so forth that are included in the text. And uh, just to go through the contents of this book. And then we have this long introduction by Carl Brunholtz. So wonderful introduction. Now, what is Yogacara? And uh, so I'm, I'm segueing a little bit, but I'm going to come back uh, to the to the different the range of texts that Rongjun Dorje wrote, which become uh, the foundation for the understanding of the view and the understanding of the path of study in the Kagyu tradition up to the present day. Uh, so just briefly to segue or to di diverge rather. We have this trans uh, this introduction by the translator on Yogachara, and um, this is this is a presentation of Yogachara as different than Chitta Mantra, 
and he's very good at explaining what is the difference between Yogacara and Chittamatra and uh, how does the Yogacara view different from differ from the Madhyamaka Prasangika point of view and um, in doing this he, he has a very wonderful presentation on Gentong and Rongtong in this section of the, the third Karmapa's view is Rongjong Dorje a Zhen Tongpa, and in in which he presents basically what I presented is that uh, Rongjong Dorje is not really a, a Zhen Tongpa, that's a little bit too extreme, but he's sort of between or the middle way between Rongtong and Zhen Tong, if that's significant to you currently, but it will be when we go through that in detail, you'll understand the significance of that. And in doing that, he goes through. Uh, wrong, the difference between Rongjin Dorje and Dolpopa, the extreme Jentongpa. And uh, in particular, Rongjin Dorje has a unique way of understanding the seventh consciousness. In most presentations of the eight consciousnesses, the seventh consciousness is, is uh, two things. One is it's labeled the total bad guy, you know, it's the ego consciousness. Klishta Manas, the, the home, the source of uh, neurosis, the seventh consciousness. And it's sort of glossed over in other presentations. But the seventh karmapa identifies it as being the key part of our, of our mental makeup that uh, has the capacity, basically decides what we do every day. Do we, do we fritter our time away or do we meditate? Or do we study the Dharma? Or do we, you know, watch sports or whatever it is that one might do? Motivated by uh, the neurotic part of the seventh consciousness. And so it's a really uh, unique and unusual presentation of the seventh consciousness. So then we have the texts that are included in this uh, in this book, we have the auto, his uh, auto commentary. So, Rongjung Dorje writes these texts, the profound inner reality, in a in the way of uh, traditionally is done with a root text in verses, and then a commentary in prose. And here we have a translation of the commentary of chapter one and chapter six. Which uh, chapter one is the the manner of being mistaken? Is how confusion arises. Uh, the relevance of causes and conditions in terms of uh, confusion and wisdom, and then the three phases on the path of wisdom. And then explaining the manner in which consciousness and wisdom are connected in the four states of being, which are life and death and dream and so forth. Oh, oh, good. We have this uh, third chapter as well. So we have three chapters from the profound inner reality. The instruction on the basis of purification and the means of purification of all phenomena. And um, this text in particular, these three chapters, not only presents the, the sort of culmination of the Mahayana view that takes place in the Kagyu Nyingma synthesis of Rongtong and Zhentong, but it also presents their way of understanding the foundation for Vajrayana practice. If, if um, to go from the emptiness of the prasangika, of the Rongtong prasangika, to 
the understanding of the clear light nature of mind in Vajrayana, as is done in the Galukpa tradition, is really this huge leap that the Galukpas somehow do by saying that they're like two totally different schemes with like no continuity between them. And for many people that doesn't make sense that there should be no continuity between Sutra and Tantra. And so for many people they understand the basis for that continuity. And here Rongjin Dorje, his texts present very clearly and uh, in detail the basis for the uh, extrapolation of Mahayana view into Vajrayana practice. And then we have a commentary on the Dharma Dharmatava Banga, Maitreya's text. And then we have some poems. And uh, we don't have, there's a, a most famous poem by Rangjung Dorje on Mahamudra that we don't have, but is available in uh, many other translations and places. And in fact, the Nalanda Translation Committee has a translation of the Song of Mahamudra by the Third Karmapa, uh, freely available on their website, one of the few things, well, one of the many things that's freely available on their website. And uh, they did that because Trump Rinpoche uh, taught on it vaguely in one of the seminaries and had them translate it. And then we have this interesting thing where we have Jongun Kongchul, the greats, commentaries on a couple of key texts of Rongjung Dorje. And um, the key texts really are uh, the profound inner reality and this text called the Treatise on Pointing Out the Tathagata Heart. Tathagata Garba, which is similar to the text by Mipam that we studied in the last class, and then this text called the, the Distinction Between Consciousness and Wisdom, which is the fourth of the four reliances. And um, these three are said to be the most uh, important or famous texts of Rangjung Dorje on uh, presenting the view in the Kagyu tradition. And so therefore, Jonggun Kongchul goes about and writes commentaries on them. And in, in the scheme of Jonggun Kongchul's writings, where he puts together these huge encyclopedias, these huge treasuries of texts called the Five Treasures of Jonggun Kongchul, in addition to these five treasures, we have these three texts that he writes on as commentaries on Rongjung Dorje's texts that stand that are like in this separate category from all of his other treasures, and in doing that, uh, in, in separating those out, and when he classifies his own writings, Jonggun Kongchul is pointing out that these three texts are extremely important texts because they provide the basis for understanding the view of Mahayana that gets translated into the practice of Vajrayana. So the Tathagata Garba text, the treatise on the distinction between consciousness and wisdom, which was the main text that I had initially focused on when I was thinking of studying this uh, Rongjun Dorje's writings, um, because it is such a key aspect of our path, understanding what is the difference between my moment-to-moment -moment consciousness and awareness and wisdom. 
How do I find wisdom within my discursive thought? How do I separate discursive thought from wisdom? How do I clarify discursive thought into wisdom? Dis clarify or transform conceptual mind into non-conceptual wisdom. And that really is the key part of our path. So when the Buddha presents four reliances that all Buddhists should rely upon, he gives this scheme of relying upon the the uh, rely upon the meaning, not the words of the Dharma. Don't fixate on the the specific terminology that's being used by a teacher, but focus on the meaning that's being communicated. Is the first reliance. The second reliance is focus on the teaching, not the teacher. Evaluate everything that's taught. And don't just accept it as true because that you, you like that teacher or you've heard this teacher is great. And that's the second reliance. And the third reliance is rely on the definitive meaning and not the interpretable meaning. Rely on the, the definitive truth of reality and not the uh, conventional truth of reality. And that's what I was talking about earlier in terms of what do we bring into our meditation practice. And in particular, we bring in the, the fourth reliance, which is uh, relying upon wisdom and not consciousness. Consciousness is dualistic and momentary and completely contrived and conditioned and focused, self, uh, focused on the self, self-referential, self-oriented. And so how do we understand the true nature of the mind as opposed to the interpretable nature of the different aspects of mental experience? What's the true nature of mind? That is the wisdom of Buddhahood. And so how do we go about understanding that so that we can actually incorporate that into our meditation? And then we have uh, in, this, in this book that Carl Brunholzl presents to us, we have a commentary on this, the text on the Sugata Heart by Karma Trinley. And interestingly, there's a, a book uh, by, this is the first Karma Trinley, and there's a book by uh, the recent Karma Trinley, Rinpoche the Fourth, on, uh, that's a commentary on this text, distinction between consciousness and wisdom, that's published separately. And I'll, I'll present a little list of writings of uh, Rongjun Dorje's writings that are available in English. But we have here commentary on this text on the Tathagata heart. And then we have uh, a presentation of the sort of key topic in the Tathagata Garbha discussion of what's the nature of Buddhahood and how does it relate to the different uh, divisions or, or aspects of Buddhahood. In particular, how does Buddha nature manifests into the, the different kayas or bodies of Buddhahood and the wisdoms. In the lineages, in these two lineages that I was talking about, a profound view and vast activity. How does that differ? And then at the end of the book he presents the, the actual translations of these texts, which are pretty short, these two, pointing out the Tathagadar and distinction between consciousness and wisdom. And so in the syllables, you'll see that I've pushed these root texts 
translations of the, the text by Rongjong Dorje up above. So when we go through Jomga Kongshul's commentary on the Tathagata Heart, we also read the root text by Rongjong Dorje in that class when we get to it and so forth. And then he gives a couple of outlines of the text, which by this time hopefully you're familiar with how helpful the outlines are in understanding what's presented in these texts, which are, are complicated texts, and so outlines help a lot. And then a little chart that presents um, the transformation of the eight consciousnesses into the wisdoms and the kayas from this Yogachara point of view of Rongjong Dorje. So I'm a little bit over time, but any other comments or questions or suggestions? It's been me talking like endlessly. I'm sorry about that. I didn't give anyone else a hair's breadth of a chance to, to comment or chime in or anything. What's up? What have you guys been thinking Let's about see. this whole time? Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. New phone. I guess when I plug in the headphones, I can't. You can't hear me. Um, could you clarify the Vajrayana class you're talking about on Thursdays? Oh, funny you should ask. I put out there this idea that maybe um, we we would do a. I would also present a sort of introduction to Vajrayana because um, we keep running up against uh, this issue of. Uh, Certain texts, like like when we went through uh, Long Chenpa's precious treasury of philosophical systems, we had to to uh, cut off when he went through the Vajrayana systems, and uh, uh, and the course at that point instead of continuing through the entire text, because uh, people have not. Uh, um, studied and practiced. Mo most of us have not studied and practiced Vajrayana to the point of, of uh, being entered into the Vajrayana in a formal way. And so I thought I would try to uh, help that happen for those of you that it hasn't happened and share with you a curriculum that we're, we're planning to use in the Westchester Meditation Center that um, we have this way of culling readings from all of Rinpoche's public books and uh, arranging them progressively into Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. And so I thought I might share the Vajrayana portion of that with you if, you, if people were interested. And um, uh, but, but most people work and are busy, and so there were not enough people uh, available to do that on Thursdays. So we'll keep that in mind for a future endeavor. How's that? I mean, unless people who haven't already reached out to me, I got, I think, three people who are interested, and so you would be the fourth. But, I'm uh, interested. And, and so are people, that's five, <laughs> are people interested in uh, daytime are people available daytime on a Thursday? Because there are some people couldn't do night times, so it's it would it would have to be Thursday evening, which is possible. I don't know. So if you're interested, uh, uh, drop me a note in a in a potential Thursday evening. It's sort of unthinkable to do yet another 
class during the week, right? Another night. That's a lot. But the alternative is maybe we just do it as the main course in a future uh, semester. So, anyway, any other comments on Rong Zheng Dorje? What does that name mean, by the way? Anyone know? What is Dorje? Dorje is a Vajra, right? Indestructible. Indestructible. Thank you, Bree. Uh, th thanks for joining us. Um, and so indestructible, uh, but indestructible is like an adjective, right? If I remember my grammar. So it's also a, a noun. There's, an there's the, the indestructible nature. And then rongjung, rongjung means self-born. Rong Jung, Rong is self, like in Rong Tong, and Jung is born, like in Pema Jugne, the lotus born teacher, Padmasambhava. And so Rong Jung Dorje means self born indestructibility, the very essence of uh, the, the uh, true nature of the Vajrayana point of view of sacred world. So, anyway, uh, thank you very much. You. And thank you, Derek. And I look forward to seeing some of you next week or Friday at the Profound Treasury and others in a couple of Tuesdays. Thank you very much. So let's conclude with the dedication of merit. Uh, but, uh, let's see. How does it go? By this merit, this merit. may all attain omniscience. Defeat the enemy wrongdoing. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may it free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. So sorry, tonight was like a little bit of like, just like tons of names and texts. And it's like, you know, maybe it was just like totally a waste of time, it seemed for many people. But I was sort of hoping that it would like provide a context where you could see all the different texts and like, what are the main ones and, and their significance. And, and I think you have seen many of these over the years and you'll continue to and they will become gradually become more and more accessible over time. And we'll flit around between them. Derek, please don't apologize. That was an amazing <laughs> Good. Thank you. Good. So much. It was brilliant. Great. Thank you very much. I thank appreciate you. that. Okay. Thank you, guys. Take care. Good night. Bye. Good night.